Hello, and welcome back to another episode of On Spec. I am your host, Ryan Brath. Going to start the show off with a congratulations to Daniel Berger, who won the AT&T Pebble Beach National Pro-Am, which I think was fairly exciting. Made it, everyone, everyone wants to see pros make those clutch shots coming down the stretch, and to make uh, an eagle yesterday on the drive of part four and then do one today on the final hole made for some very exciting golf. And we're actually going to talk about his club's kind of first thing because there's some interesting stuff going on there, and I, I wrote about it a little while ago. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But before I do, I want to remind you that On Spec is brought to you by Titleist and the all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X. It's longer, more consistent, not only from a feel perspective, but from an actual ball flight perspective, because this is the first time that they've changed the entire aerodynamics package in quite some time, and it's softer. That's one of the big things that a lot of people are always looking for with their golf ball, both around their greens and just with irons in general, and both the Pro V1 and Pro V1X offer a softer feel. And what's also really cool is, if you're curious to know how it's made, which is done in Ball Plant 3, uh, which is very famous. You can generally go there for tours, but right now you can't. But you can virtually tour the plant at Titleist.com slash BP3 dash virtual. Or type virtual tour into Google, check out Golf WRX. You will find it there. And I think it's, as someone who has gone through the plant, which I thought was just an unbelievable experience, I... I can't speak highly enough about the virtual tour. It really does take you through all of that. And um, be sure to check it out. And if you're testing golf balls getting ready for the year, be sure to test out the all-new Titleist Pro V1 and Pro V1X. Okay, so to the topic that I teased off the top, that's the old classic broadcaster move where, you know, you you kind of intro it, you tease what you're going to say, and then you, you, you throw to an ad, right? Uh, anyways, uh, so... Daniel Berger won with a set of irons, which I've written about in the past because um, he had some really high finishes with them, and that is the TaylorMade TPMC from 2011 leading into 2012. So the iron is now roughly 10 years old. And what does this mean when a player wins with a piece of equipment that is a lot older than you know a lot of modern stuff that is available, or when people talk about looking at modern equipment versus the older stuff. And first of all, we have to remember that Daniel Berger is one of the best players in the world. So he is looking for something that is familiar, offers him the kind of consistency and feel that he wants, and it doesn't mean that he can't find something better. It could just be the fact that he just really likes the look of those irons. Uh, Another famous holdout on irons, um, very famous actually, is Chad Campbell. Chad Campbell had the CC1s which were custom-made for him by Adams at the time. It was an iron that uh, was a little bit longer heel toe, had a little bit more offset. They were specifically designed for Chad, and he, I think, was using them up until even last year or two years ago, which is an impressive run. It was around the same time like the A12 Pros or A12 Tours came out. Uh, A lot of different irons had come and gone from Adams and a lot of other companies, but he stuck with them just because for him they offered the feel, and especially the look. It doesn't mean that new stuff isn't better, especially when you're looking at something that is intended to be more forgiving, higher launching, offering more consistency. But when you're one of the best players in the world, 
you know, if, if you find something and you like it, you stick with it. And I mean, some players generally do this anyways, right? You'll see players that stick with three woods for a long period of time. I think Scotty Scheffler uh, had this old Nike fairy wood until a couple of weeks ago when one broke and he's got a backup or he got a backup from someone else and he continues to test other ones. But, you know, some players can get into this groove with a certain golf club and they just don't want to change. You've seen it as well with someone like Tiger Woods. Tiger used that um, that Titleist PT Fairywood forever with the steel shafts in it. Like At the time, when he came out with that club, he hit it just as far as a lot of players hit their drivers. And then people started catching up to him. But he loved that golf club. He had produced the shot that he wanted and he had the club head speed to take advantage of it and because he's Tiger Woods and he you know, hits it pretty good. Uh, you know, heel, heel shots and toe shots allowed him to work the ball like he wanted to. And, you know, he's moved on to modern stuff. He's into the new tailor-made sim or the sim 2. And what he gets out of that is a lot more ball speed, higher launch, lower spin, way more forgiveness. And, but at the time, you know, he, he stuck with what he liked. I mean, he still uses that same putter, right? Uh, so there's lots of examples of tour players using clubs that are older. And if you go and visit the driving range at any Muni, or you go wait on the first tee, you'll see a lot of players that have clubs that are, you know, way more than a decade old. And it's a lot of times it's because, you know, you'll I've seen players come into fittings. They'll come in with a brand new set of irons, and they just want to get the Lyle Offs done. And they have this one hybrid that's, you know, 12 years old. And you'll ask them, like, what? you know, you've got this new set. You've just been fit for everything in your bag. Why do you still have this golf club? And they'll straight up to tell you that, you know, I needed everything else to be improved, but I have one shot on my on the course that I play, if I'm a member there, or I play regularly with my buddies, and say it's a par three that's, I don't know, 200 yards or 195 yards. I know, because I play that hole four times a week, that I really want this club to hit that shot on that hole. It's a comfort thing for me. I don't want to get rid of it. And in that case, a lot of fitters are not even going to bother to try and replace it because you create you can create doubt for that player and it doesn't actually help the overall experience, especially if the person is producing pretty good numbers with it. They're able to land it, they do whatever it is distance-wise and they have the right trajectory and it, and it feels good to them, then most fitters will actually work around that club in their bag, which I think is important if you go into a fitting and you're looking at older clubs or you have some older clubs that you're really comfortable with, for a lot of players it can be a 7-wood. I mean, Duffner's got that 915. Yeah, I think it's a 915 uh, Titleist Fairywood that he's still kicking around. It doesn't mean that new stuff isn't better. But for him, he's just so comfortable using that golf club, he's probably not going to switch it anytime soon until he cracks the face on it like Scheffler did. But, you know, someone had a backup somewhere. But it gets to the point where things need to be replaced especially when it comes to wedges and in some cases irons because maybe the short irons are getting worn out or in the case of a fairy wood or a driver something actually cracks or you're starting to see a lack of performance in that as well and so it's important to keep that in mind because a good example of a player that had a set of irons that they loved and eventually switched out of them was Tommy Fleetwood. Tommy Fleetwood I think there were there were other players as well some Nike guys who have held on to golf clubs because they just work they hit a distance for them uh brooks is famous for having that uh the vapor fly long iron it's come it's come and gone out of his golf bag i think he uh, had it a couple weeks ago 
um, just holds on to it, right? It's just one of those golf clubs they don't want to get rid of. Uh, and so t- for Tommy, it was the, the Nike blades, I believe. And he just didn't want to get rid of them. And so everyone was joking around like, oh, Tommy's going to buy them online or whatever it happens to be. And eventually, now that he's a TaylorMade staffer, he f- got the, the what is it, the, the P7... TWs or TFs for him. They custom did the milling on the back for him, which I think is kind of cool. But it's not a matter of, for him, it was a matter of actually replacing golf clubs that were worn out. And so he's been able to do that with TaylorMade, totally different brand. Obviously, the irons are quite similar to what he had before. But overall, like you've got the mill grind, so you got all this other stuff that he was he really wanted and he got out of his golf club. So if you have those like those one club again for Daniel, it's an interesting case because it's a full set of irons. But in a lot of cases, if you have that one club that you really like, maybe it's a good idea to have it get looked at, or it's a good idea to go to a fitter with saying, like, just be very open. And it's, it's this is a general conversation that I tell people all the time when I get asked on uh, Twitter and Instagram when I do my question and answer, which remember, you can follow along, RDS Brath on Twitter, RDS Brath on Instagram, you can follow the show as well at golf or uh, on spec WRX on Instagram as well. And when I do questions on Fridays, which again, you can follow along, usually Friday afternoons, I'll either do a live Q&A, like live on Instagram, so you can just ask in the comments section, or I'll do on the stories where I'll go live and you can ask questions and I'll answer them throughout the afternoon. I'll do my best to answer as many as possible. Uh, I think Instagram caps are like 100, so I've, I've definitely gotten to that multiple times. So the last, like I have this one club, I don't really want to get rid of it, what should I do, or how should I talk to a fitter? Anytime you go into a fitting, and this sounds like a broken record, but communication is so key. The interview process is vital before you even start hitting golf balls. And I can remember specifically doing fittings every single day. And when a player comes in, you start specking their golf clubs, and you just have this conversation. How do you like this club? Is there a club that you don't like in this set? Is there is there something about it that you seem to work, or there's a shot that you like to hit? What is it? And, you know, to the player, you're just, you're just, you know, you're blabbering back and forth. You're having a quick conversation just while you're specking out golf clubs. But in reality, the fitter is assessing the entire situation. They're talking about what they like, preferences, um, which I guess is what you like. I guess you know, I doubled up on that one. Uh, shot shape. Like, what is someone looking for? Where do they, where do they, where does the player, where do you analyze a weakness? Does that match up with what the, the fitter sees? Because then it comes down to a perception thing. Maybe you think you hit it too high, you actually need to hit it higher. Maybe you hit it too low, um, and you really do need to get it up in the air a lot more. So there's all of these things to keep in mind. And for the fitting side of things, it's about communication. It's about, you know, if you got something you like, stick with it until, you know, it really starts to, you know, not work as well. Uh, I've definitely gone back to older clubs in the past, but in a lot of cases when it comes to drivers, especially fairy woods. For me, fairy woods are so vital, especially if you haven't gotten something in, in like the last, say, f- let's say five years. You are going to see a huge jump in performance if you haven't upgraded or at least been fit for a fairy wood uh, in the last five years because the amount of ball speed, the amount of height you can get on fairy woods because golf courses aren't getting any shorter, then you need to be able to elevate shots to be able to get not just extra spin and descent angle, but help with consistency good shots and bad shots you hear that from every single oem talking about especially in the fairways and hybrids getting consistency yes off a tee 
you're going to hit it probably pretty good most of the time, right? But when you start hitting it lower on the face or higher on the face or to the heel or out to the toe, uh, Ping's got what's uh, spin consistency in the G425. You've got arc technology in Titleist Ferry. You've got all this stuff going on within the golf clubs that are there to help perform. You've got uh, twist face in tailor-made stuff. Everyone's got an angle to help pr- create extra ball speed and help create extra consistency, and that's what you get when you are looking at newer clubs. And again, I've touched on this subject before. Um, Burger kind of got me down this road. This is actually not, <laughs> this is kind of part of what I wanted to talk about today. But when I start going, you know, generally this is the, the discussion of what happens. Um, but it's the idea of just being comfortable with the clubs that you have. And if you're not, go see a fitter, go get fit, and, you know, replace that thing that's not working for you. Well, that was a, that was a good, fun intro there. Um, so, I've got a couple things I want to talk about uh, that are, you know, some throwback stuff and a little bit of a mix match today because as a lot of players are getting ready for the season, a lot of players are looking at stuff that maybe they can't necessarily get fit for, but they want to upgrade their gear in some way or another. And uh, so I'm going to talk about the details, all the little things that might be involved with your equipment but might also not be that can not only help you play better, but also be more comfortable on the golf course. Uh, Things from like my own personal experience, to be honest, that I've really enjoyed using, um, only because, you know, there's like, I don't know, I've got a lot of ticks when it comes to playing golf, like it comes to carrying my golf bag or using an umbrella or a glove or all these kind of things. So all that little detail stuff is something that I want to talk about. But before I get to that, I want to talk about a piece and some other companies probably is going to lead down that road. Uh, that I wrote for Golf WX this past week about Nikent. And they are a company that I think most people are probably familiar with. If you played golf in the mid to early 2000s there, they had a really good run. They did. Uh, They produced a lot of great golf clubs. Uh, Some of the stuff that I profiled for the piece, if you haven't had a chance to read it, is the 3dx pro irons they were a forged iron with a um like a little vibration dampening thing right in the back they had the 4dx pro which ended up starting to they they did have this unique look because they had these rubber and kind of tungsten or heavy steel pads so it looked like this little square it almost kind of looked like a lego brick like one of those two-piece lego bricks but it was a lot bigger and made out of rubber that would go into pockets or cavities around the golf clubs to help with acoustics and they had not they weren't the first to really do hybrids i would definitely credit that obviously there was the tailor-made rescue the original like orange burner one which god the thing was i mean it worked but it wasn't like super forgiving and it was kind of well it was ugly uh but then you had adams which really was the mainstay as far as when most people think of hybrids even now the classic idea of what a hybrid looks like idea hey look at that that wasn't even intentional is the Adams hybrids or the idea hybrids and you had all kinds of different series you had super game improvement stuff you had better player stuff and if you're someone like myself who's a gearhead they had all kinds of these tour issue hybrids uh, I can distinctly remember getting one of the very first um, it was almost like because the, there was the a2 hybrid even like this is going way back and they had prototype versions of those. And they were like the first, this is when they really started picking up steam on tour because they were making hybrids for players, 
basically to their preference, what they were looking for, what they were getting feedback on centers of gravity and launch and spin and turf interaction, all these different things. Ended up getting one years after it was released. I'm talking like five, six, seven, eight, probably even eight years after it was originally out as a prototype. I found one. Uh, I actually got it used at like this used store near me. I don't know how they, where they, it came from. I think there's a, there was a few at the time PJ Tour caddies that uh, lived in the area. There was definitely one for sure. And so, you know, eventually he'd get enough stuff and he'd trade it in and he'd like give stuff to family and friends or whatever. I think he was lefty. I think he might've been a lefty. Oh no, he was a, he was a righty, but anyway, okay. I digress. Let me stop there. So I had this hybrid and I just really enjoyed using it. And then the Kent came along and I remember starting to work in golf retail. There was like the, the 3DX, the Gen X hybrid that came out and not only did Nick Kent hit this beautiful sweet spot, again, I'm talking from my retail experience, for customers who wanted something that was new, something that was very forgiving, something that looked good, something that had some tour validation to it. I know that is a key part, especially when we're talking back when you know people are walking in, they want to get fit, but it wasn't as pre- prevalent in the industry where you, you know might do a little bit of lie loft tweaking or change some grips or something like that. But most people were buying, walking in, hitting some golf clubs, picking their favorite one, and walking out of the store with maybe some few adjustments, and that was, you know, very commonplace. So with that in mind, Nikent was this perfect brand that hit this price point, and they made forgiving golf clubs. Not only was there the 3DX Pro, which was a forged iron, but there was also uh, a much larger golf club that was just called the 3DX, I believe. It came with uh, hybrids in it, which is another thing to always keep in mind because not only did Adams have the combo set, really introduced it for the better player with the Idea Pro. But then they also, then Nikent came along with these other clubs and they offered hybrids as well. Um, I would say that for the better player, if you were looking, I mean, you got, you had players like um, Jim Furyk was one and who was actually, he was probably one of the most notable players using one at the time, but there was a bunch of players on tour. So it went, basically they were always fighting for two and three for, uh, I think they might have been, I don't know if they ever got to number one, but they were definitely two and three when it came to the hybrid count on the Nationwide Tour. They were definitely number one on the Nationwide Tour and then with the PGA Tour. And it's an, it's just, it's a crazy story. And for Nikent, they had this little secret weapon. I talked about, this is, I don't want to say I'm totally rehashing the piece. I want to go a little bit deeper than what the the piece that I wrote really kind of took a look at. And that was the fact that the person who was designing a lot of their golf clubs, his name was uh, John Hoflinch. Hopefully, I really, I tried to pronounce that correctly. I looked for a couple different pronunciations. And uh, so he was behind a lot of popular irons. Um, The most popular being the second most popular iron of all time. And that is the Tommy Armour 845, the Silver Scott 845. Uh, Only second to the Ping I-2, which had a run of, I think, close to almost a decade as far as production goes for an iron, which is insane. Uh, And you still find used sets that go for pretty good value, especially when they're in good shape. And one of the clubs that I recommend to people, if you're just looking for a used set and, you know, you're not too quite sure what you want, go out there, find a set of I-2s. You'll never lose value. You just buy them and you can sell them for basically the same thing you paid for them. Uh, so you've got this this guy who's designed irons and has done a great job with them. He also designed the TaylorMade Rack LTs, the original versions, not the second versions, I believe. I know for for, um, for fact he did the first version. I'm not sure if he did the second one. And so when it came to Nikent, not only did they have this great iron in the 3DX, but they also produced one of the first irons that had this um, injection goop 
right? A lot of people talk about uh, you got PXG, you got the Wilson Reflex. And the Wilson Reflex did come a long time before this. When we talk about performance and we talk about feel, a lot of people talk about PXG and the fact that their clubs feel really soft because of the acoustic dampening properties of the TPU that they put inside. Well, Nikent did this in like the mid-2000s. Now, they didn't have a really thin face. PXG has, has an extremely thin face. And a lot of the newer irons like the 790 and the 770 and the the Ping, the big one, I can't, G700, uh, a lot of companies have gone and well surpassed the technology that Nikent offered. But they were one of the first that offered it in this blade-looking iron. And if you think back, if you're trying to picture what this club looked like, it was a blade, it was a little thicker, and it had these three dots in the back that were green. And it carried over to the wedges. And for as far as players who use them, I don't know why, but Bubba Watson played one of these arc wedges for, like, years. And he had the little his dots were pink. Maybe it's because he could customize the dots. I don't know. But uh, I always thought that was really cool and one of the coolest irons that they ever did. And they also launched something called the 4DX Evolver. It was a driver that actually came in a box, which seemed weird at the time, but it came with two shafts. So you could actually adjust your gall shaft, and it, the, the driver had like something like 16 settings, or I might have even made 32 settings. It was very fine as far as the tips that were used on these things, kind of like that original Nike that had, I think, 32 settings on it, which doesn't make any sense. Like, why you need that, I have no idea why. But to bring a 460 driver with adjustability, with multiple shaft options, to the consumer was a big deal. This was before Callaway initially launched the iMix, which uh, at the time did not go over well. I remember distinctly uh, working retail when this came out, and I'm trying to understand, like, this doesn't make any sense. They ship you the heads, you get the shafts in the cool little bags, like boxes. They were all clear in these things. They'd go in a display, but people couldn't hit them. And as much as, you know, when you're dealing with the club-fitting audience and the, the people that want upgrade stuff they oftentimes want to hit it and want to get fit and you could go do go through that process but with Callaway and and they because they didn't offer an adjustable driver at the time and now all their drivers are adjustable and that offers a huge benefit to the consumer but Callaway took a big chance on this and I wouldn't say that it was a huge success but it led to something that was much more successful so you got to give them credit for that and anyway someone could come in and you could buy the head and then you could buy the, the shaft. And it, what, it, what the idea was, you know, someone could come in, buy the head, try a shaft, and then try something else. And, you know, they're not going to trade the other one back in. They just have two at this point, right? Um, and so with that as well, the problem was someone would come in and they see a head and it'd be like, I don't know, 400 bucks. And they see a shaft and it'd be like an upgraded shaft from like, I don't know, whoever. I'm not going to name a company. But it'd be like $300. And someone would go, what? This doesn't make any sense. I can get a normal driver that's normal, like built stock for like not half that, but for, you know, 30% less. Well, it's, and then you got to explain aftermarket shafts to people. It didn't really work in the consumer environment um, then. But when you think about what consumers have at their disposal now, you can log on to any OEM's website. You can pick out the amount of tipping that you want in your gall shaft, the, the setting you want on your driver, the grip, the length, the swing weight, all of these different things that are now available through custom portals that the consumer has access to is really impressive. But at the time, because that wasn't really an option, the Kent was like, here's two golf shafts. Here's how they go together. You can adjust them. You can adjust the face angle and all these different things to help with ball flight. And boom, you got this cool golf club. And it was neat. And they had some technology like packed into this thing. It was a good-looking driver. It was around the same time as the R7 uh, Super Quad. I believe it was right around the time of the Super Quad. 
And it had a similar profile. It was a little bit bigger. Uh, Super Quad was a very deep club head with movable weight, which is another, like, very cool innovation. It was the first 460 driver movable, like, full, uh, the movable adjustable weight. Or, I'm not sure, actually. It might have been the RP. Adam's RPM might have actually been the first one. It had a dual weight. So it was Super Quad had four weights. So that was um, 460, four weights, adjustable, Super Quad. That was there first. So there's all these firsts around this time in the industry, and we're seeing more now when it comes to different processes and, and construction and all these different things. But Nikent offered that. So what happened? 2008 happened, unfortunately. And as Nikent was working in this upward stream, they were doing quite well as far as retail and all these different things. And all of a sudden, 2008 hit. They had just invested in a big tour van. They had just invested in a bunch of tour staff. And basically from 2000 to May 2009, that was it. As soon as that happened, they had a lot of inventory that they invested in. And it was just... No, unfortunately, they weren't the only ones. Um, I know at the time, McGregor was another one that had kind of really reintroduced itself into the market. And it just it didn't catch on with consumers uh, because people don't want to spend as much. They go to the trusted brands, and that's what happens. It's just kind of an unfortunate thing that happens in the industry sometimes. And not just golf, but it happens in a number of industries. And uh, that is the story of Nikent. And it was a fun little like research project that I wanted to do because I had a lot of their golf clubs. I've come along uh, when looking for used stuff and shopping around and, and messing around, trying to f- find maybe a project or helping people out. Their stuff pops up once in a while, and it always kind of created this curiosity for me of what really happened because I remember selling them, and all of a sudden it was just like one day they were gone. And as a kid working retail, I didn't really care one way or the other. It was like, okay, they're blowing out their golf clubs. It's the end. Let's start selling some other stuff. So... Uh, Fun story, interesting story, and uh, there you go. Got a guy who designed some great irons. They still have some cool stuff out there if you can find it in good shape. And, uh, you know, just one of those things to keep in mind. You know, everything has a story. Now, the last part of the day, not a long part, but something that I want to talk about is the kind of overlooked pieces of equipment or things that people don't emphasize as much about, and it leads to a poor experience on the golf course. Uh first one and i'm not mentioning brands here this is not like i'm plugging stuff for for myself okay i'm not even going to mention really any brands at all uh maybe i will a couple times but overall i'm just going to just point out the ones that you can find that work for you and i'm going to explain why there's things that i like about maybe certain products or why i look towards certain products because for me the first thing i'm going to say is shoes i have very wide feet which doesn't help because a lot of companies don't even make wide options. So for me, a shoe is so vitally important when it comes to comfort. And you have to think about, are you looking for style? Are you someone who walks a lot? Do you want light? Do you want waterproof? When do you play? Um, There's nothing worse than, and pay attention to these little details. That's what I'm saying. I know, again, maybe this isn't the normal topic for the show, but I think it's important, especially if you're talking to a new golfer, We want to be welcoming. We want to be educational. And that's what this part is about. And when your friends are asking, what should I look at? What should I pay attention to? Obviously, when it comes to shoes, you should try them on. Pay attention to your sizing, all of those different things. But pay attention as well to, is there a waterproof guarantee? Do you plan on only playing fair weather golf in the afternoon? Then you probably don't need a heavy waterproof shoe. Maybe something that's going to be um, water resistant. If it's got some more of a mesh upper to it or something like that. Uh, Maybe you don't need 
like spikes on them either, right? If someone is a casual golfer, they don't want to have to worry about maybe a spike falling out or replacing it. Um, most golfers are generally going towards spikeless anyways. I'm not saying that everyone is, but you know, the trend continues to grow when it comes to spikeless. And it's just those little things you got to think about because especially for those players that aren't sure what to look for, it's really key because I've talked to golfers who are like, oh, I didn't pay attention. I got a pair of mesh shoes and I didn't think about it. I went to go play early and my feet got soaked by like the first hole because I was dew sweeping. Well, that's not great. And that also applies to a golf bag. If you think about the belly of a golf bag, there used to be Sunday bags that were, some were waterproof on the bottom, some weren't waterproof on the bottom. And then you go out and your grips are soaked after a few holes. And I'm, I know Sunday bags are not a big part of the market, but if you are a tournament golfer and you have to play in certain conditions, or you know you're probably going to have to play in conditions one time out of the year, or you're traveling to uh, Bandon, and you might get rain, or you're traveling to Scotland, or you're traveling to the UK, and you know you might get rain one of those days, it is really important to have something that is comfortable and waterproof, not just with your footwear, but with your golf bag, or some type of hood, or all these little things that are, you know, they add to the experience. I can think of a number of times being stuck on the rain, like, I wish I had something different with me, and I didn't, you know what it was? Part of it was the fact that I probably had it and didn't think about it at the time. And then as soon as I get there, I realize that I'm screwed. Um, another one, too, leading to shoes, uh, socks. Make sure you have comfy socks. If you're playing 36 a day, change after the first. Um, I really, was it? Lieut- I didn't force Gump reference, Lieutenant Dan. Take care of your feet. Change your socks every time we stop. That whole quote, I always really liked that from Gary Sneeze. I thought it was really funny. And it also applies to you if you are planning to play a lot of golf during the day. Um, to potentially have a couple extra pairs of shoes if you are, because your feet are going to um, emit moisture. It's going to happen, um, as well as with your socks, just for comfort. And uh, I used to wear kind of thicker socks because I didn't really care. And then I started actually wearing more golf-specific sho- socks or like thinner style like running socks. Game changer. Absolute freaking game changer. And it's funny because... There are times when I would think like, okay, like it's a sock, right? Why would I pay $20 for a pair of socks or $25 for a pair of socks? Well, if you're wearing a crappy pair of socks and you get a blister, trust me, you'd much rather spend that extra $20 on a pair of socks uh, right away. And I think most people who've ever gone through that experience would happily say, I really should have spent more money on the socks. And it's just, you know, those little things to pay attention to. Grips. I touched on this last show when I talked about making sure, you know, you you go through the process of being vocal, picking what you want, being able to test, buy one grip if you're not sure, hit it on one golf club, you don't like it, change it back, it's really easy. But if you're going to do your own grips, this is kind of aside from picking the right texture and taper and all of these different things, uh, and cushioning or whatever it is, sizing, there you go, I think I've kind of touched on most of it now. But the inside diameter of the grip can vary. I've had people recently message me about some questions about, have you felt this grip feel really odd? And I'll say, what shaft is it on? And they'll say, oh, this shaft is this one and then my fairy woods are, are something else. And if the butt diameter, like the OD of the shaft is a lot bigger than other shafts, the grip is going to feel different. So in some cases you have to buy a different grip to fit that golf club, or you have to change the amount of tape that you use to alter that golf shaft. 
As a club builder, I will fully admit that I have been so picky when it comes to grip sizing in the past that I have refused to use certain shafts, even though I, do, I don't mind using them. I think they work quite well, but it just I couldn't figure out a grip that created the sizing in my hand. So every club in my bag was the same, and then my, my driver felt different, or my one ferry would felt different. And I was like, huh, you know, I just can't get used to this. So you know, I tried something else and fit into something else that worked basically just the same. So those are little things to keep in mind about being comfortable, being familiar with your equipment, because just like Daniel Berger and his irons, right? If you like something and you know you're comfy and you know you're confident in it, stick with it. A couple more things here just to round out the show. Sounds silly. I know this is ridiculous. Uh, I, I love a good hat. <laughs> it sounds silly, right? People just like, okay, whatever, grab a hat and put it on. Um, I tend to have a lot of hair most of the time, so I'm a big tour visor guy. Love the high visor. Used to think it was weird, and then I like, I maybe mean, just, I think when you get older, maybe, I don't know, maybe because it's trendy and sometimes it's trendy, sometimes it's not trendy, whatever. But like, I used to think, oh man, that looks like so old school. Now I'm like, I freaking want that old school look. So I love the high visors all the time. Um, the dad hat doesn't fit my head. <laughs> um, I know it sounds, I just, I can't get into the dad hat. I, I've tried. I'm a dad. <laughs> Thought maybe I should try this on for size, but it just doesn't fit. And it sounds silly. It does. But if you and you, I've seen there was a player this week at uh, Pebble Beach when it was either windy or rainy. He turned his hat around because it just wasn't staying on his head. Or he got furic with the hat where he turned it around. He famously sunk that putt to win the FedEx Cup um, because there's something again. That was that was pouring rain. I think Tiger did that at one time too. But like if you're gonna get a bucket hat, or you're gonna get something. It's gotta make sure that it fits. Um, and then, you know, protects your face properly, right? That's actually one of the reasons why I really like the big visor. And this leads into something else really small, but kind of important for me. I'm personal message here. I am generally allergic to most sunscreens. There's something in it. I think it's like the titanium or aluminum or whatever it is. And I can't wear sunscreen. Uh, so I will, if you see me out playing and it's a really hot, sunny day, I will wear like the sun sleeves. And I've tried some crappy ones. I've tried some really good ones. And most of the time, I just wear them now. And it's kind of one of those things where you should have a good sunscreen in your bag uh, so your hands don't get all greasy, so you can wipe them down or whatever because you don't want a club slipping. And, you know, that's like a small thing. And last but not least, gloves. When you have a golf club, it's good to not only have one, but generally have two if you're a re- not just a, re- a... If you're more than a recreational golfer, it's good to have at least two golf gloves of the same thing. Or just two that you like to switch back and forth. It doesn't really matter. But well, I definitely have a lot of gloves. Some are a little thicker. Some are a little thinner. They come from different brands. They sl- they size slightly differently, which is fine. You just have to know what you're getting into, whatever it happens to be, right? And for uh, you got to look at sometimes its durability. What like what are you, what do you want from that piece of equipment? This whole thing, this whole exercise, which is not a big one. I know I talked about Nikent and I kind of talked about Burger's Irons maybe a little longer than I should have. But the idea is you have to take responsibility as a golfer and you should also help others to better understand what they need. Because if you're a, if you're a regular golfer, which you probably are if you listen to this show, then you probably generally know what you like. But sometimes you have to ask that question. you got to be curious about maybe that might work better for me. Maybe this is a better option. Maybe uh, maybe there's something about it that's going to provide a performance advantage. But when a golfer walks in, I've always took this, I kind of took this personally when I worked in retail, although 
I never got, I know I never worked in like a commission environment, which I think is always really good for the consumer anyways, but at least from the golf perspective, but the idea of, I am looking out for the best interest of the person coming in and answering their question. I don't want to sell something to somebody. I don't want to upsell them. I mean, I don't want to upsell them on something because it, it earns me something else or it adds to my manager's like bonus. Or I don't really care. Um, the goal is to have someone come in, help them with their questions, and provide them the best service you possibly can and the best information you possibly can. You should strive to get that from when you go to a fitter or you're talking to someone about golf. But if you are an educated golfer and you are someone who other people look to information for or your friends ask you about it, just take the time to ask a couple questions because, you know, in your own mind, you have to kind of think like a fitter. You got to think like not a salesperson, but think of someone who's trying to be there to help and be helpful. And you have to, this way here, I'm just trying to offer a different point of view that you can go out and say, you know, you're looking for a glove or you're looking for a golf bag. Don't just buy the one that's on sale because, you, you know, it could be on sale. It could be a great deal. But if you're planning on riding in a cart most of the time, don't buy the on sale stand bag. Maybe look for a cart bag. Or I've literally, I mean, I've seen people do it. They stroll up. They're not really used to golfing. They, they're newer golfers. And they get a package set that doesn't come with a stand bag, and then they go out and sometimes they don't get a push card. They got to carry it. Like that's not practical. It's not going to be a fun way to enjoy a round of golf. So it's just those little simple things, of little details, to help yourself if you are new to this and you're trying to help pick these things out, or if you're someone else who gets asked these questions, or you're you have someone who's asking about them. You know, send them this way. Happy to help it on the podcast there, but also just as a way to be open to the idea of being helpful. And that's what this was all about and all finding all those little details. Was the last part of the show a little different than usual? I think so, but that's okay. I want to be able to help and that's what I'm here to do. And sometimes helping means talking about subjects that I'm not always going to talk about. And uh, that's it. That's the end of the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, I know it was different, but I want to touch on other subjects sometimes. And if you have questions, remember to reach out. RDS Brath, Twitter, RDS Brath. On Instagram, I do question and answers on Friday afternoons, as well as you can follow the show's page along at golf at onspecwrx as well on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.